Hello and welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm Diane Kenwood, writer, blogger and broadcaster, and today we're heading to the village of Waddeston in the Aylesbury Vale in Buckinghamshire. Our journey begins on an ordinary high street which hides an extraordinary story of survival, hope and philanthropy in one of the darkest periods of our history. Please be advised that this special episode explores events around the Holocaust and features some emotive descriptions. We first came to Waddesdon on 16th of March 1939 and we were welcomed by a group of people from the village. Waddesdon in Buckinghamshire is best known as the home of Waddesdon Manor, owned by the Rothschild dynasty. But our journey today starts somewhere very different. I'm walking along the village high street and I can see rows of shops, a couple of pubs. Then we come to a cluster of really unusual looking, almost gothic style houses. In March 1939, a group of 23 children and their two adult guardians stepped off a coach here, taking in their strange new home in a strange new country for the first time. The children were Jewish refugees. They'd escaped from Nazi Germany, where they'd been forced to leave behind their families, friends and homes. These children came to live in the village in a house with cedar trees growing outside. They would become known as the Cedar Boys and Girls. And we're here to find out more about their remarkable story with the help of the people closest to them. Hello there. Hi, I'm Diane. I'm Jackie. Nice to you. Hi, Jackie. I'm Jeremy. Jeremy, Hiya. explain to Jackie me and Jeremy are cousins. Their mothers, Helga and Laura Steinhardt, were sisters. The sisters, aged 14 and 11, their parents, Mr and Mrs Steinhardt, and in total, 31 children, aged 8 to 15, were Holocaust refugees who arrived here in Waddesdon after fleeing their home in Frankfurt. Jeremy and Jackie, we've walked through the village and we've come to this quite sprawling, very attractive red brick house. What's particularly special about this place? Well, this is the Cedars, where the Cedar boys got their name from. And this was the house that they arrived here in March 1939. How do you feel now looking at the house and knowing that's where they came when they were so little? It gives me goosebumps. (laughs) It's lovely to see that the trees are still out at the front and that it really hasn't changed very much and it is extremely well maintained. It's interesting, isn't it, this generation of people who came over during the war processed their experiences because my mother-in-law came from Austria during the war when she was a young child and my father-in-law was Polish and he escaped from Poland. My mother-in-law did talk about it a lot. My father-in-law never talked about it at all. How did you piece together the story of your mother's history and what happened when they came from Germany to live here? It was only really later on when we spent so much time together that she talked. I used to go down there every day. I used to have all the photograph albums and I think they were the thing that clicked with me. Who are these people in this photograph album? I'd better find out. Let's go back and paint a picture of your mother's life. So the two sisters, Helga and Laura... My mother was born in a little town called Friedberg and Helga was born in Butzbach. I think they're quite a happy little family. They lived in a very nice apartment. They mixed with the whole community. Yes. They didn't just mix with Jewish people. Yes, and that changed in 1933. 
It's so important to recognize that the Holocaust didn't start with the flip of a switch. There is a slow buildup. My name is Alex Maz. I'm the head of education and heritage at the Association of Jewish Refugees, or the AJR. The years of 1933, when the Nazis first came to power, all the way through 1939, the outbreak of war, the situation became increasingly dire for Jews living in Germany and Nazi-occupied areas. Anti-Jewish laws included excluding Jews from certain professions and education. Businesses were eventually closed. Financially, Jews had to pay a series of levies on their assets and eventually turn over their property. There was a loss of personal freedom. There was a loss of citizenship, critically, a requirement that Jews had to carry an ID that identified them as Jews. As with all Jewish citizens under Nazi rule, life became more and more difficult for the Steinhardt family. 1933, my grandfather Hugo was told he wasn't allowed to be a schoolteacher anymore. And then I think their life became more peripatetic. They just tried to find work. With limited options, the family considered themselves lucky when Mr Steinhardt eventually found a job in Frankfurt. Hugo Steinhardt would be teaching at a prestigious Jewish school, the Philanthropin. The role included living and working at a nearby Jewish boys' home, the Flersheim Sickle Siftung. The home had originally been an orphanage. However, increasingly, the children arriving there had been sent by their parents from surrounding villages, where anti-Semitism had become especially severe. One of the boys arriving at the school and home was Hans Speer, who later changed his name to Jack Speer. Dad was always a happy child. He was very loved. Even though he was an only child, he had a lot of uncles, aunts and cousins, as well as both sets of grandparents. He had a normal life. I'm Margaret. I'm the daughter of Jack Speer. Dad grew up in a small village of Treiser, northeast of Frankfurt. Willie, Dad's father, had served as an officer in the First World War, and he was hopeful that things would improve. He didn't think that the Nazis' views would affect him and his extended family until it was too late to do anything about. It was usual at school for Hans to be picked upon because he was a Jew. On Dad's 10th birthday, the children stood up and said, we don't sing to Jews. After his 10th birthday, Dad was expelled from school, purely because he was a Jew. The Steinharts and parents of the boys staying in the children's home in Frankfurt hoped for safety in the more anonymous big city. But any relief would be short-lived. On the 9th of November, 1938, Kristallnacht, meaning the night of broken glass, marked a violent turning point in the persecution of Jews. The ordinary people were authorised almost by the state to attack Jewish synagogues, schools, homes, even the children's home. One of the boys said that it was a really cutting note. Most of the people that attacked the children's home were their neighbours. Yes. He recognised them. They were throwing bricks through the windows. The children were made their way to the back bedrooms and hid under the beds. They got away with relatively 
little damage, except that following that, Hugo and the other teachers were taken to Buchenwald concentration camp. There was really no denying after the 9th of November the situation and how untenable it was for Jews in Germany to stay there. They really needed to find any place at all in the world that would take them in as refugees. That wasn't really an option for most Jews. Hardly any countries in the world offered to increase their immigration quotas to help those Jews who are in desperate need of a safe haven. For those of us in the Jewish faith, Philanthropy, or tzedakah, is a cornerstone of our beliefs and an ethical obligation. So when the world looked on in horror at the unfolding atrocities under the Nazis, Jewish campaigners, along with other organisations and individuals, urgently put a rescue plan into place to help refugees. Against the ticking clock of the outbreak of war, campaigners appealed to the UK government to relax their immigration laws for Jews before it was too late. In a highly charged parliamentary debate on the 21st of November 1938, the government, under Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, discussed the issue. The main focus of the debate was to help unaccompanied children. There would be stipulations the children were not allowed to come with their parents, but the government agreed to waive visa restrictions that would make it easier for these refugee children to enter the UK. And just weeks later, campaigners had mobilised a massive evacuation plan. The Kinder Transport is the name that's given to the rescue operation that began on the 1st of December 1938, uh, led up to the outbreak of war in 1939, during which nearly 10,000 unaccompanied Jewish children under the age of 17, mostly from Germany and Austria, but also from Czechoslovakia and Poland and other countries, were sent by their parents away from the threat of Nazism to safety in Britain. Those children were placed into foster homes, hostels, schools, farms, any place that could take them in across the UK. When many people talk about the kinder transport today, they often think of it as a program sponsored by the British government. But it's important to know that it was average ordinary people who actually organized this massive rescue operation. One of the stipulations of the new law that enabled the kinder transport to happen is that children were allowed to come as unaccompanied minors, but there needed to be a guarantee, a fee that was paid for each child of 50 pounds, which is something like 2,000 pounds in today's money. It was 10,000 children who came to Britain, but not their parents. And so for every story that we hear of a kinder transport refugee, we have to remember that they left behind their parents, their wider families, their siblings. Meanwhile, in Frankfurt, sisters Laura and Helga Steinhardt were in a desperate situation. Their father had been tortured in Buchenwald concentration camp, but at the time, release was possible if he could prove he was going to leave the country. So the sisters, aged just 14 and 10, devised a plan to try and get their family and the boys in the children's home out of Nazi Germany. During that time, my sister and I wrote letters to various VIPs to see if they could help us. This is the voice of Helga, speaking in her old age for an oral history project at Waddesdon Manor. 
She recalls how she and her sister wrote to prominent Jewish figures around the world, appealing for their help. I wrote to President Roosevelt, but he wasn't really interested. And my sister wrote to Lord Rothschild. That's Lord Rothschild Victor. And she was very lucky because he managed to contact James and there was a house available in Waddleston, the Cedars, which was vacant. And James sent a representative to Germany, that was Mr Julian Layton, and he negotiated with the boys' parents and the officials to obtain all the requisite papers to transfer the boys' home to Waddleston. Let's set the scene a bit in terms of the journey that the whole group made from Germany to get here to Waddleston. How unbelievably difficult it must have been for the parents of these children to agree to let them go, knowing that that could be the last time they ever see them, but also knowing that by doing that, they're saving their lives. I know that on the morning that they left Frankfurt, my father's mother was present at the station. They weren't allowed, actually, on the platform. I don't know about Willy Speer, because at that time he had been taken off for slave labour. The children would have boarded the train. During the train ride, the emotions were very tense. The police boarded the train. That was terrifying. Some of the children's luggage was searched. were allowed to take a mug, food for the journey basically sandwiches and nothing extra. As soon as the SS got off the train and the train went from Germany into Holland, the emotions on the train lightened enormously. Recall Dad saying, you know, they they said hurrah and the great fun. From the hook of Holland, they took the night boat to Harwich. I do have here Dad's ticket for the SS Prague. Dad was issued with a second-class ticket on the 15th of March, 1939. On the journey across the Channel, the sea was very rough and there was a very sick smell down in the berth of the ship. Uh, So Dad spent a lot of his time on deck. After arriving on British soil, there was a final train to Liverpool Street Station in London, the hub for kinder transport arrivals. But as the children took in this new country for the first time, their initial impressions were somewhat mixed. I've got one or two little quotes. Hans Bodenheimer was one of the boys. My first impression was, so this is England, look at the women and all the makeup they're wearing, (laughs) and they smoked. (laughs) Liverpool Street Station was noisy and chaotic and a lot of children being processed. And they were lucky in the sense that they had a coach waiting for them there. And that then brought them to Waddesdon, where they were met by somebody called Mrs Court at the Cedars. For the next part of our story, we'll find out what happened when the Cedar children and their guardians, Mr and Mrs Steinhardt, arrived in England as Holocaust refugees in 1939. Our next stop is a short distance from Waddesdon Village through the scenic Aylesbury Vale to Waddesdon Manor, former home of the couple who made the children's escape possible, James and Dorothy de Rothschild. 
So we've driven up the winding road to get to the manor and here it is. Oh my goodness me. It's like coming across a French chateau in the middle of the English countryside. It's a big honey-coloured building with probably the most bonkers selection of rooftop turrets, spires, chimneys that I can possibly imagine. Hello, Colette. Nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you too. Tell us what you do here. I'm senior collection manager. Can we have a look inside the amazing yes. building, please? Yes, <laughs> yes. Good heavens, look at this dining room. So it's an astoundingly ornate room with marble on the walls and huge tapestries inset into the marble and an enormous oval table in the middle with two giant chandeliers. The interesting thing to try and imagine is that at about the same time that the Cedar children were coming from Germany, James and Dorothy, like many owners of large country houses, had packed away their collections and hosted groups of evacuees from London. And these were set up as nurseries with little beds. So James and Dorothy were extraordinarily generous, not just with their home, but also with their care for all these children. Yes, yes. But the very, very special thing about James and Dorothy is their setting up mechanisms to be able to bring children from Germany. So the Cedars, the house in the village, had been built as a maternity home. It was an opportunity to repurpose it as a home for a group of people. I'm now going to take you into the panelled room and we have some papers and material to look at and talk about there. Fantastic. Hi, Catherine. Nice to meet you. Hello. Your job here at Waddesdon is... I'm the head of archives and records. And I know you've got some to share with us. First of all, I want to say hello to Margaret. Nice to meet you, Margaret. Now, you are the daughter of one of the Cedar Boys. I'm the daughter of Jack Spear, who was known as Hans-Johim Spear. Fantastic. Well, it's Up on the top floor, head archivist Catherine Taylor has delved into Waddesdon Manor's extensive records. Helped by descendants Jackie, Jeremy and Margaret, we can piece together a vivid picture of life for the Cedar Children refugees after they arrived in the UK. Let's get stuck into these fantastic archive pieces. So the first thing I have here is called a diet sheet. What they were fed for the first two weeks they were in Wadston. I imagine that it must be very different to what they were used to eating in Frankfurt. Jeremy, could you read out a few examples of what they did have? Irish stew for dinner, potatoes, leeks and treacle tart, beef sausages, Savoy's rice and prunes. It's a little bit like school dinners, isn't it? Really? It is. Yeah, what we had. When you look at it, you really can see that feeding this many extra mouths was a challenge initially. It's not a very varied diet. Hundreds of miles away from home, the strange food wasn't the only new thing the children had to quickly get used to in order to assimilate into their new country. They weren't allowed to speak their mother tongue, German, and had to quickly learn English. And then there was their new shared accommodation to adjust to. Among the Cedar Boys was Yuri Seller, who later wrote about his first impressions of the home in Waddesdon Village as an eight-year-old boy. Jackie, I think you have a record of what the first impressions of that house were. Yuri says, with our small suitcases in hand, we followed Hugo and Lee through the raw iron gates and up the path. Waiting at the front door to greet us warmly was Mrs Court. 
the wife of the gamekeeper. She took us to our rooms where everything had been readied. There were seven bedrooms upstairs. My room, which I was to share with five other boys, was a large bay window room that had been neatly laid out with six beds and a row of six small wash basins. We went out downstairs with our shoes clattering loudly on the uncarpeted floors. <laughs> our sitting room had a table big enough for everyone and there were lockers that had been prepared. High up on a shelf was a Bakelite radio that in the months and years ahead would be our central source of news. The kitchen consisted of three rooms. The first room where all the food was prepared and a second room, the scullery, with a stone floor and a large Belfast sink. We soon got to know this room very well because the rotor was drawn up for us to wash the dishes, dry them. <laughs> there were mountains of pots and pans. In September 1939, World War II began. And in the midst of these extraordinary circumstances, the Cedar children were growing up. They were helped by the close friendships they formed and making the most of the freedom of playtime in the countryside. What have we got to look at now, Catherine? So I've got photos of two of the boys holding chickens in 1940, which perhaps shows part of what day-to-day -day life was like. I might tell you a few things that happened just every day. The chickens were kept in the orchard, and every morning and evening before and after school, the boys would collect the eggs. At the end of the garden, there was a field in which a horse was kept, and the boys would climb over the fence and try to ride the horse bareback uh, before <laughs> being found out. And then on another occasion, they started to dig a very large hole in the back garden. And when they were asked what they were doing, they replied that they were trying to dig to Australia. Outside of their home, the group integrated into the local community. The children did well at school, and for the first time in years, they could play with non-Jewish children. On the first day of the boys being at the Cedars, the boys were kicking a football around on the front lawn. The local boys came to see what was going on in their little village. When it was time for dinner, the local boys said, see you tomorrow. The Cedar boys were ecstatic. They were so excited that someone who was not Jewish wanted to see them tomorrow. The community even stepped forward to offer their homes to the children. A rota to stay with foster families in the village was very popular, as it offered the boys respite from the more institutional children's home into the warm family environment they desperately missed. Yuri stayed with Nurse Edwards, who he really, really loved, and they treated him like a son. She also took them on holiday to Slandidno, a little group of them. So they were very, very good to the boys. The group of refugee children had made remarkable progress adjusting to their new life in England. But the shadow that constantly hung over all of them was what was happening to their families as the atrocities of the Holocaust worsened in Europe. Even for Helga and Laura, who'd managed to escape with their parents, tragedy struck the family. My father died in 1942 as a result of his being tortured in a concentration camp. And after that period, my mother had to carry on on her own. After World War II began, communication with home became increasingly sparse. And for some children, it stopped altogether. For many of the Cedar children, they wouldn't find out what had happened to their families until towards the end of the war. 
Your father's family were all left behind in Germany, Margaret? They all perished, yes. Whilst Dad was here in the village, he did have communication with his parents. And later on, he received what was to be his last communication from the German Red Cross, and it was received in May 1942. It had taken about a month for the telegram to arrive in England, and it was usual to write on the back of the telegram to reply to the sender. But my father knew that his parents were going away, and my father knew what going away meant. So my father kept hold of this telegram throughout his life and kept it very close to him. And here it is. Beloved Hans, letter received today. We approve of your choice of being baker and confectioner. Beautiful. Be well-behaved and faithful to your employer and all people. Work hard and be supportive to all. Heartfelt greetings. The thing about them all is having suffered this extraordinarily traumatic and difficult experience, they did manage to go on and lead fulfilled and fulfilling lives. And that's in itself a truly remarkable thing. The next artefact moves us on quite a long way, doesn't it, Catherine? Yes, it takes us nearly 40 years from the end of the war. It's the article in the New York Times from July the 28th, 1983, and the headline is 15 who fled Nazis as boys hold a reunion. And it talks about the reunion they had here. And there's a picture here of Dorothy and members of the Cedar Boys and Girls outside the Cedars in 1983. Jackie, what did your mum go on to do? My mother became a teacher. She went to teacher training college and met my father, who was very persistent in cycling all the way from Leicester to Manchester. She worked hard, she had six children. When she was older, she began to translate for the Association of Jewish Refugees up to the age of about 90. And what about your mum, Jeremy? My mum did various things. She worked in an ammunition factory during the war in a laboratory, that's where she met my dad in Manchester. She became very interested in art. She spent a lot of time making pots. She trained to be a teacher. She was a bit of a mover around her mum. She didn't settle to things very well. And when she was a bit older, she was quite active in supporting the Vietnamese boat people, the refugees that came over. Your father was a baker, wasn't he, Margaret? Yes, he was a master baker. My father finally left the Cedars on the 8th of September in 1943 at the age of 15 and eight months. His first job was as an apprentice at WD South, the Bakers and Confectioners in Aylesbury. He went on to own his own business and expand the group into three bakery shops. Growing up, I remember the warmth at home, a place filled with love and smiles, food, and my father's great sense of humor. I have the speech here that Dorothy gave on the occasion of the reunion, and Dorothy said, How delighted my husband would have been that so many of you have made your way in the world so very well. It must have taken courage as well as resolution. But my favourite thing on this speech is her first line, which says, I'm afraid you very grown-up men will always remain cedar boys to me. So I think the best place to finish this morning is to go and look at the plaque that the boys unveiled. If you just head out to the parterre and find Red Lion Step. 
We've come past the beautiful, vast, planted, formal gardens to a quiet little corner. And there's something very special here. So, Margaret, read us what it says on this plaque. The plaque is dedicated to the revered memory of Mr and Mrs James de Rothschild by the Cedar Boys and Girls in gratitude for the sanctuary at the time of conflict, 1939. I have one last question for each of you. Why do you feel that it's important that the story of the Cedar Boys and Girls is preserved and told? Well, I think it's essentially a lesson from history. And I know there are lots of lessons, but you can't afford for any of them to disappear. So we've got to keep that alive. Jackie. This is their story, but there are so many other refugees in the world who deserve tremendous respect. And hopefully we treat them in the same way. And what about you, Margaret? My father would have been very happy to share his experiences. He was always very grateful to England being his sanctuary. And he was very thankful for surviving the war and not being one of the six million Jews who died in the Holocaust. I mean, each time I go back to Germany with my sisters, we always ask to meet up with the school children over there so that we can tell our story. And they often say to us afterwards that they didn't realise that they were walking on pavements containing such history. for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast and a very special thank you to the families of the Cedar Boys and Girls for sharing their stories. If you'd like to find out more about the Kinder Transport you could visit the Association of Jewish Refugees website and if you'd like to find out more about Waddeston Manor and other places with Jewish heritage connections please do look up the Jewish Country Houses Research Project online or go to our episode show notes where you'll find more information and resource links. From me, Diane Kenwood, goodbye.